0: Habits and Health, episode 54. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health. My guest today, Dr. Bill Hang, who's a traditionally trained orthodontist who practiced, as he was taught, for about seven years, which was removing permanent teeth, using headgears to retract and and so on. And he noticed that many of his patients' faces were not as attractive after treatment and decided to find a better way, a different way. So we're going to dig into what was that and and how did he go about that. And for those of you who may have read the book, The Oxygen Advantage, the excellent book, The Oxygen Advantage, Bill Hang is actually mentioned in that book. So hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you know anyone who would get some real benefit from some of the wisdom that Bill shares, please do share the episode with them. Habits and health, my guest today, Bill Hang. How are you, Bill?
1: I am fine. Thanks. Thanks for asking.
0: <laughs> and we find you in sunny California.
1: I live in Los Angeles County in Agoura Hills, California for the, for the last 25 years of my life. Yes.
0: Wow, and that sounds like a lot warmer than where you grew up originally.
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's very nice here. Uh, it's enviable. I, when people ask what the weather is, I tell them you don't want to know. <laughs> it's too nice.
0: Yeah, well, certainly compared to where I am, it's it's a, yeah, yeah. a lot warmer, I guess. Yeah, and and Bill, you're an orthodontist, and many people listening may not be so familiar with the, with that phrase. Could you explain what an orthodontist is?
1: Well. <laughs> When you think of an orthodontist, people think of someone who traditionally puts braces on teeth and straightens teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids have cro- crooked teeth for reasons I'm sure we can explore, and the orthodontist is a person who straightens the teeth. Uh, that, in, in reality, I'm almost apologetic about saying that I'm an orthodontist uh, because that's not really my focus. It, it, making lower front teeth straight Uh, To me, if if that was what was put on my gravestone is that's what he did is he he straightened lower incisors for a living. I'd feel like my life was pretty much of a waste.
0: So when did you, well, when did you become an orthodontist?
1: Uh, I started orthodontic training at the University of Minnesota uh, this June. (laughs) We'll make 50 years ago. Wow. Uh, Yeah, a long time. So, yeah.
0: And that, I can imagine there must have been so many changes during that time.
1: Well, th- there are a lot, there have been a lot of changes, but th- the sad part is there haven't been enough changes. Right. Uh, the profession I learned to straighten teeth, and mm-hmm. in the process, I often remove teeth, pull the front teeth back because that's what orthodontics do. Orthodontists do, and it's not appropriate. It, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, I began to look at the faces that I, of the patients I was treating and I didn't like what I saw. And I, There was also a general dentist in the United States at the time who was teaching other general dentists to do orthodontics and he was claiming that the orthodontists were literally wrecking faces and producing temporomandibular joint problems or pain in the ears and, and ringing in the ears and, and things like that, clicking and popping in the joints. And I began to explore that. And I began to think this guy is right. And so I started looking for different ways to do this. And that journey started basically in November of 1981. And it really hasn't ended. Uh, I've been in 50 states and several foreign countries, including yours, uh, learning uh, about how to do things in a different way. I went through a a time which was kind of dark because I had so many patients that I'd had teeth taken out and I began doing new things that I frankly didn't even know if they were going to work or not, but I knew I couldn't continue to do the old thing. And I lived in a town of 18,000 people in Vermont where what you do gets home before you get home. People know about it. And if Mm -hmm. the new things I was doing worked, that would be great. If they didn't, uh, I might as well pack up my bags and leave. And Mm -hmm. I also had a great deal of guilt about the patients I had taken teeth out on and what was happening to them and, and didn't know a way to reverse that. So it was a very interesting time, but it got me away from traditional orthodontics.
0: And, and I guess you say that was in the, in the early 70s. You started realizing it, you wanted to do things. No, the early different. 80s. Sorry. About 80. 19, about 1981,
1: 82, 83 in there. It was a very challenging time in my life.
0: And the, I'm, I presume there wasn't many people... Who were trying to look at things differently, like not, you No,
1: not really. Mainly the interesting thing is mainly there were a, a bunch of general dentists who were very unhappy with what the orthodontists were doing. And me being an orthodontist, uh, I was you know, I felt like I was in the crosshairs. But when I opened my mind, I realized these people were very smart and they had they they saw our patients later on after they left our 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 orthotic practices. The kids go off to college and grow up, and the general dentist sees what they look like years later, and the general dentists don't like what they see because mm. people look worse. Their faces collapse. They have jaw joint problems, and now what we've really gotten to know in the last twenty to twenty five years is that many of these patients suffer not only from pain patterns but from sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, because they're. Teeth have been pulled back and their, their tongue space and airway has been reduced. Uh, I have a lot of videos on the Internet and I literally get people contacting me from all over the world. Almost every morning I will awaken and there will be an email from somebody somewhere asking me, gee, I've, I, I, I've identified a syndrome which I describe as extraction retraction regret syndrome, ERRS. As in mistake, identify it and, and define it as a constellation of aesthetic, functional, and and uh, emotional uh, symptoms, which are the result of orthotic retraction. And there's three different things: aesthetic, functional, and the emotional, a triad. And you know, typically people, hey, I see my lips collapsed, uh, my. F- cheeks are flatter, my smile is narrower. Those are aesthetic concerns. Functional concerns, gee, I'm, <laughs> I am I'm have clicking jaw joints. Uh, I don't have enough room for my tongue. I snore when I didn't before. Uh, lots of things like this and even worse. Uh, and then what happens is those two then spill over into the emotional side. And many people who who will come to me and they'll identify as, I am an ERRS sufferer, and they they may have had pain and hated their their smile for 20, 30 years, and finally they see this on the internet and they contact me and then they tell me, I am an ERRS sufferer, do you know someone who can help me? And the answer 99.9% of the time is no ask me, do you know someone in my town? And I say, I don't even know someone in your continent. I'm sorry, because I get people from. I've had people from all the continents in the world.
0: In well, so it sounds like in the 80s it was certainly difficult. But what is the situation now? Are, are there far more do- are then orthodontists looking at things the way you do, or is it still
1: there? Are there are a few, but not a lot. Uh, and with the internet, uh, parents, mothers are getting much more educated, which is great. Uh, So the people who come to me in my practice, they frequently know more about me than I know about me. And they'll also, there's a lot of feeling that removing teeth is not okay and retracting, pulling the teeth back is not okay. Given the fact that now we we really know scientifically that our faces are way back from our ancestors. Daniel Lieberman, as an anthropologist at Harvard, you know, University and he's chronicled in this book called "The Evolution of the Human Head" how our faces are back massively from our ancestors, and what happens with that is if the upper jaw is back and the lower jaw is back, your airway can be compromised, and so this becomes a big deal. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of controversy in the profession regarding the effect of what what retraction can do on the air up to the airway. As a matter of fact, three years ago in Marco Island, Florida, the American Association of Orthodontists had a, had a uh, convocation to address that very issue. Uh, and the, the white paper <laughs> that was supposed to come out of that was actually written, the final draft was written before even one speaker spoke. Uh, and and it, I don't want to get into that a big deal, but let's just put it this way. I think that the profession would rather see the whole airway thing go away. Whereas the American Dental Association in 19, excuse me, in 2017, uh, made it, had a convocation and and mandated that the dentists learn to screen for airway issues uh, for for their patients. Sadly, that is not being done by most people, but at least it was a positive step in the right direction by the American Dental Association.
0: And and there may be some people listening who are a little bit confused as to what, airways have to do with uh, teeth. So could you could you expand further?
1: What does airway have to do with teeth? It has everything to do with teeth. Uh, John Mu in your country is a is a, is the brightest orthodontist to ever live. Uh, I met him 32 years ago, and he has very accurately described how and why the, f- the face falls back, the upper jaw falls back, the lower jaw falls back, because children... Have what we call poor restoral posture. They're more mouth breathers, and their tongue posture is low, which allows the upper teeth to fall back, and in turn, the lower does too. Now, we have some silly classifications in our in our uh, in our profession called class one, class two, and class three malocclusions. They're they're in reality they've never been scientifically validated to mean anything, and they, both jaws fall back in all in all those classifications. As the upper jaw falls back, the soft palate falls back. As the lower jaw falls back, the tongue falls back. Nobody knows, you know, how big an airway has to be to be adequate. But the smaller your airway is, the worse, the harder it is for you to breathe. There's a there's a law governing the flow, uh, the resistance to the flow of a gas in a tube uh, varies inversely according to the fourth power of the radius of that tube. This is called Poisson's Law. The fact is, if you look at that, a small change in the diameter of that airway can have an amazing impact, both positively and negatively, on how someone breathes. (laughs) John Mu has shown that everything falls back because many people today are mouth breathers. Uh, Some may hang their mouths wide open. Others will just have their their lips apart by a millimeter or two. But the, the the, the effect is still the same. And there's plenty of evidence of this in the literature. There are a number of articles which and books written about this from anthropologists who aren't really orthodox. Robert Coraccini is one at Southern Illinois University, PhD, anthropologist. And he talks about how, how the phases change. Uh, and <clears throat> there are others that have been out there. And this, this has been out in the public since the 1800s even. And even mm-hmm. before that... <laughs> the ancient Chinese in medicine talked about how someone with a receding jawline does not live to a ripe old age. So, this is not new new stuff out there. But in reality, what you're dealing with is faces that are back and airways that are back. So, John Mu developed this approach to move the upper front teeth forward. So, typically, in a child, the teeth are often 8 to 10 millimeters too far back. And John in his infinite wisdom, decided let's move those teeth 8 to 10 millimeters forward. And then he developed an appliance which will bring the lower jaw forward and make it so that the the child will hold the jaw in that position uh, still as it can be. That becomes a new rest position of the lower jaw. And over time, that jaw will grow into that position. And I've been doing this now for 32 years. In the year 2000, I recognized that, indeed, we were improving the airway with a bunch of consecutively treated cases. And I had an article written along with the help of someone else who actually grew up in Great Britain, but it's with the National Institute of Health in the United States, very well-known person. He did a research project on my patients and showed an increase in the airway of 31% at the level of the palate 23% at the uh, uh, behind the tongue and even 9% down in the throat with these consecutively treated kids. Now, realize that this technique is not easy and it requires total cooperation on the part of the, the patient to do it. But if you have a child who will do it, you can, you can have a nice improvement. We literally never guarantee any kind of a result or improvement in the airway, but we've seen it and we've seen it can be very life-changing. You have children today who are getting brain damage from sleep apnea. As a matter of fact, Ron Harper is a PhD neurobiologist at UCLA and has used MRIs to show the brain damage that occurs even with one night of reduced oxygen saturation. And it's permanent brain damage. And he can go into their articles that he has in the refereed literature for anyone to find. Uh, there's a, another gentleman who's a good friend of mine in a... Uh, And a group that I am part of is called the American Academy of Physiological Medicine and Dentistry. His name is Philip Cooper, and he's in Savannah, Georgia. He's African-American, and he's written a book, Why African-American Children Cannot Read. And it really has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It has everything to do with so many of them in disadvantaged uh, situations have lots of health problems, including sleep apnea. And so they literally are arriving at school by the time they're starting to go to school. They've already had so much brain damage that they're really not going to be able to breathe, uh, to, to, to function properly. Uh, this is, and it has, it, yes, it, it has some, their disadvantaged status makes them more likely to have this happen. But it really has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It can happen for any, it can happen for a uh, Caucasian, it can happen for an Asian, it can happen for anybody uh, we've been. We can see huge changes in behavior when when a child sleeps uh, better and breathes better. Uh, there's a there's a video out on the internet that you can find called "Finding Connor Deegan." He's a young boy from the Chicago area, and he he was frankly suicidal. He and he was the the. the cut up in the class. The teacher hated him, and he was about one of these performances in class of being institutionalized. The good news is he was uh, referred to Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, ha- had a sleep test, realized he had sleep apnea, had tonsils and adenoids removed, and had his, me- his upper jaw expanded to make more room for his tongue by someone that has taken my mini-residency, where I teach John Mew's uh, approach And the boy got rid of the sleep apnea, became a totally normal kid, was not, was not a bully anymore. Uh, his grades improved dramatically and he was a nice, nice, nice boy. And it's all about breathing and sleeping. And I mean, I know this boy and I know his, his mother and I, and there, I knew some other people that had kids in his class and it was a complete turnaround for this boy. Uh, interestingly, the head of Lurie Children's Hospital In Chicago, his name is Stephen Sheldon, and he's been a good friend of mine for 20 years. He's a physician. He's now retired. But he would say this he says, I do not believe there is a thing such as ADHD. I do not believe it exists. And currently, by the way, the last figure I saw is in the United States, 15% of the kids are being diagnosed with that. In the next breath, Steve Sheldon says, I believe it is always, and he uses that term, which is interesting for a researcher, a scientist. It, I believe it is always a breathing and sleep problem.
0: That's, I mean, it's. I don't know where to start. There's so many things you said there I'd like to expand upon. One one of the things, you talked about that that child in, in Chicago and the difference it made by restructuring his jaw, essentially. Yes. And how that changed his attitude. And, and right. one of the things that went through my mind as you were saying that is, I imagine there must have been so many people who just couldn't compute. How could changing his jaw affect his attitude? And they just weren't able to understand that.
1: It's, there are a lot of people that will be challenging for, but when you realize that making a, even a tiny change in the airway can have a massive effect. Uh, I had a, a gentleman one time who was in his 40s, and an orthodontist had closed some spacing and pulled his teeth back, hadn't even taken any teeth out. But he came to me for a second opinion because the general dentist didn't like the result. And I determined that the guy had sleep apnea. And I said, we need to reverse this and push the teeth forward. And and so I d- designed an appliance, which I use routinely, to move the teeth back forward. And very soon after he started the process, he came in and he says, uh, my wife says, I'm not even snoring anymore. And I look at him and say, Joe, how can that be? I barely moved your teeth. And he said... And, you know, he says, no, she says I'm not snoring. And who am I to call his wife a liar? I mean, who knows better than she does? She sleeps with him. And that's that was a learning thing for me that somewhere there, there's a, there's a threshold for any given person that, okay, now they have enough room for their tongue and their airway opens up, their tongue moves out of the base of the throat, gets up to the roof of the mouth, and now they're okay. So what we're really trying to do for kids is to have them uh, establish proper rest oral posture, which means, as John Mew says, teeth together lightly, tongue firmly to the palate, plastered right up to the top of the palate, and lips together without strain. And John would say that face will grow forward uh, naturally according to his genetic plan. To the degree that that is not happening, then you see it grow down and back. And this has been corroborated very well by study back in the 1960s where... Uh, they took monkeys and plugged their noses and you know, they were breathing through their nose all the time, but they plugged the nose and then the face changed about, they had the monkeys to stay alive, had to, had to mouth breathe and the faces and teeth changed just like it has for humans. Uh, more recently, and this is the the best, best thing, James Nestor, who's a, uh, who's written the book breath, uh, has he actually did this for himself. You could, everybody should read this book. It was number six on the New York times bestseller list when it came out a year and a half ago and published in 32 languages. Hmm. Uh, he's, he and a friend had their own nose plugged up for 10 days and they did all kinds of physiologic tests on them and their blood pressure went up and all these markers changed in a negative fashion. I mean, these guys were not happy, but they, cho- they chose to be guinea pigs in this experiment, which had never been done on humans. But you need to read the book. And once you do, you're going to think, Oh my gosh, this really is a big deal. Hmm. And it's a very compelling book and basically a confirmation of everything that John Mew has been working on since his, you know, the 1950s and everything that I've known about and been researching for the last you know 32 years since I met John
0: it, it is a fantastic book and I agree with you any anyone listening <laughs> really should read that book by James Nestor. and and for people listening to I mean are the listeners of this show I think tend to be kind of 40 plus people in, you know 40s 50s 60s maybe and any, anyone who's listening who is older maybe they do have sleep issues maybe they are snoring a lot what right. would be what would be your recommendation as the the first step that they could take to towards changing that
1: well first of all they need to identify the problem and see if it's a, if it really is a problem uh get in, see their primary care physician and tell them you know gee i have these issues i don't awaken well rested i i wake up gasping that's a classic sign When someone's gasping, they've they've stopped breathing and now they're starting to breathe again. That's called an apneic event. So that's not a good sign. And if the person wakes up and they've slept for eight hours but they don't feel well rested, those those people are not gonna be in good shape. If they tend to fall asleep reading a book or watching television, these people likely have apnea. So you get the test done. Okay, now you know you do or you don't have apnea. But even that isn't, doesn't tell the whole story. And Christian Guimeno, who was the head of the uh, Stanford University Sleep Clinic until he passed away uh, two years ago, had over 400 articles in the refereed literature and was really the person who defined sleep apnea and came up with the mild, moderate, and severe classifications. In his later years, he was lecturing and said he wished he'd never came up with those classifications because they don't really re- describe what's going on for the patient. So what... what The the bottom line here is find out if you have a problem. If you have a problem, then treat it. If the sleep doctor says you need a CPAP machine, which is a continuous positive air pressure, then get one. It will help the person feel better in the morning. But there's a (laughs) New England Journal of Medicine had an article, I believe it was about six years ago, from the University of Flinders in Australia, stating that a CPAP machine does not provide a statistical benefit of reducing the chance of heart attack or stroke. But those who have apnea have to understand that untreated apnea is good for a 20%, 20% reduction in a person's lifespan. 65 uh, to 80% of all stroke patients have apnea. And your chances of apnea is, is correlated with every chronic disease known to man. That's comes from some very well-known sleep doctors, and I've heard most of them Uh, speak over the last 20 years. So are there things to do for those individuals that are suffering? The answer is yes. The CPAP is the first thing because it'll help someone feel better. But let's say, for instance, that someone has had retractive orthodontics and you have many in the UK who contact me, by the way. Uh, I have any number of them. I've treated people from, uh, from, from the UK and reopened extraction spaces for them. Uh, where they've had four teeth taken out. Starting in 1989, I've been, I've been reopening those spaces for people. And uh, I've, I've, been done it, I've done it for people from more than 30 states and several foreign countries. And, and I, before I analyze the case, I have a pretty good idea if we're going to be able to help get rid of the apnea. And I have sleep reports for some patients showing that we've been able to do this. We literally never promise a result. Not once in my life have I promised a result for anything I've ever done. I'm an Eagle Scout, and I promise to do my best. That's what I tell people with a smile on my face. And if they want to have treatment, then then we proceed. But that may help some. And sometimes it doesn't take very much to, to help someone breathe better and sleep better. Um, I had a woman more recently that we finished treatment on. She'd had four teeth taken out, and she'd... For 20 or 30 years, she'd been seeking solutions for this. And when she came to see me several years ago, she she said, she talked about, gee, I, I have a problem when I swallow here it's difficult for me to swallow. And I said, well, it may well be an airway problem. And later on, years later, when we were talking, after we had resolved her problem with reopening spaces and surgery, she told me that I was the, she had seen more than 100 doctors before she saw me. And I was the only person who recognized that she had an airway problem. Airway problems, I mean, very few people have great airways. Very, very few. And so it's a matter of how bad is your airway and how much does it affect you? Can you get along with it or not? There are other things to do. I mean, (laughs) surgery to advance both jaws can open the airway. If it's done properly, and very few surgeons know how to do it well, sadly. And if the orthotic preparation is done properly, I've done hundreds of, of jaw surgery cases in my career, and I have many people who are you know, undergoing that kind of treatment, and I prepare them for it and finish them afterwards. So there's something to do for everyone. Sometimes widening the jaw laterally can help. And so orthodontists are taught that you really can't expand the adult maxilla, the upper jaw, uh, because the sutures close. Well... Uh, in the er, in the early 1980s, I met some orthodontists who say that's not the case. And so I have expanded my own maxilla seven millimeters, and I did that 32 years ago. I also opened up a space where I had a bicuspid tooth taken out when I was 11 years old, growing up in Illinois. And I. so I've made my own maxilla bigger non-surgically. And I've expanded the adult maxilla more than 10 millimeters of people in their forties and fifties and have not pushed the teeth off the bone support, which is what most orthodontists were taught would happen. But orthodontists are taught things that they, that, that someone speculates would happen. When you ask somebody to, sh- well, can you show me a case where the teeth have been pushed off of the bone and the teeth have been lost? No one has those cases, but this is just part of the profession that people say, you can't do this. It's kind of like, don't go out too far on the ocean or you'll fall off the edge of the earth until t- till Magellan you know, went around the world and came back. The other the way, other way uh, everyone thought the world was flat. Mm. So in a way, that's a great analogy for this. Uh, so there's something to be done for everyone. It may not be quick and easy, mm. but it can be life changing. Uh, this one woman who, who said to me, uh, you know, I'd been the first person out of 100 doctors to recognize uh, her problem. One day, toward the end of her treatment, she was sitting in my treatment area. And out of the blue, she just said, after she'd had jaw surgery, to bring both jaws forward, she said, I would do this surgery 10 times to feel the way I do today. And that's a very compelling statement from somebody. It's what I call a, an, oh, by the way, Dr. Hang comment. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you are looking for deep support to create the health and life you want, we invite you to consider one-on-one coaching sessions with Tony. Coaching sessions give you personalised guidance to fit your unique goals and life situation. Only a limited number of spots are available, but you can easily get started by booking a free introductory call at TonyWinyard.com. Now back to the show.
0: You talked about CPAP machines there, and one of the things I was wondering is, a lot of people, well, some people maybe they they put on a CPAP machine, and then they they start to use it for many months, and then they begin to think of that as normal, and they'll just <laughs> use that for the rest of their <laughs> lives. What would be the next progression? What would? How could someone aim to progress from using a CPAP into to, to a situation where they no longer need that?
1: Well. First of all, they'll feel better and that, and then that, and that is their new normal. And they think that's normal, but it's art, it's, it's basically, I call it life support. And I'm glad that people, people do it and they feel better. Again, I go back to the study from the University of Flinders report of the New England Journal of Medicine that they're honestly, they're not that, they're not less likely to have a heart attack or stroke. So it's, I think that it's a good, it's a good stopgap measure. It's a good band aid hmm. so they can feel better but they need to find somebody who knows how to address this issue. Uh, the sad part of it is that the, there are courses being given now about, gee, you expand the upper arch, and bo- most people, most orthodontists are never gonna expand the lower arch hmm. because they, there's no suture in the midline, and they've, they've been taught that you'd push the teeth off the bone support. Hmm. I've expanded adult lower arches, 10 millimeters, and I routinely do that. I actually have my own wife in treatment right now. Uh, and she, because she's begun snoring, she never did before. As you age, the muscle tonicity gets worse. And so what we're trying to do is expand both of her upper and lower jaws to try to get rid of that. Hmm. So these are things that can be done lateral expansion. The unfortunate part of that is uh, that lateral expansion is not. It's 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 part of the solution, but a very poor part of the solution because the problem really is, in that front-to-back plane of space, our jaws are back from where they used to be. We have what appears to be larger noses. Our noses aren't larger; they just look that way because the upper jaw is back. People have flat cheeks, and their lower jaws back. They often have a sloped forehead because they're they're keeping their chin forward just to breathe and stay alive. Uh, The sloped forehead is so common. Realize that someone's forehead should actually be vertical, vertical, straight up and down. But how many people do you see with their head tipped back like this? They don't even know they do it, but they do it because if they didn't do it, they wouldn't be able to breathe. They also have forward head posture. If you drop a perpendicular from the middle of the ear to the floor, it should go right through the middle of your shoulders. Zillions of people have their jaws their head, their entire head, two, three, or four inches forward. Over time, this pays a, the, the neck muscles pay a big price for this. But the the patient is doing it just to survive. Um, you can sit in a in an airport and watch people walk by, going down to the gates. And I do this all the time with a cup of coffee. And I and I, I look at some people and I say, Oh my God, they're barely alive. Their head is ready to fall off of their body, and the, and frequently. You can tell by their entire gait, the way they walk, you know, they're way older. They're, they're way, way, way older than their than their years uh, that they've been alive. We, we as a society suffer horribly. And Nestor comes, you know, he describes a little bit of this in his book, but not not as much as as really would be nice uh, as a society. We're pretty sick.
0: Mm. Well, and you, you talked about the surgery on your, on your wife more recently for, you know, for the snoring. So it made me think about, is there, I, I mentioned as many people who listen to this show who may be in their fifties and sixties and so on, is it, if, if people are thinking, oh, I'm too old to have that kind of surgery, what, what would you say to that?
1: The oldest person I've had to have this surgery, and this is kind of comical, was, uh, I think it was three weeks short of his 75th birthday. Uh, this, he was a retired U S Navy pilot and a bicycle fanatic. And he had the year before we did this, he had ridden his bicycle from Jacksonville, Florida to San Clemente, California, a distance of approximately 3000 miles. And he took his, uh, his CPAP machine with him. And so he went and had this surgery done after I prepared him for it. And interestingly, you think, well, it must hurt so much, must be so horrible. Not really. Uh, five weeks post-surgery, he was out doing 20 miles a day on his bicycle. So, there, And this can completely change someone's physiology. Uh, I had a woman years ago, and this was, this was very classic. She'd had a headache pattern, and she was a horrible clencher, and she had sleep apnea. And she was from Florida, and I used a surgeon in Texas to treat her, to bring her jaws forward. I called her. Uh, I called her three weeks after the surgery, and uh, and said, "Well, how are you doing?" And it was amazing. Out of she, five things came out of her mouth in rapid fire fashion. Number one, I'm thanking God for for, for you uh, and Doctor Walford, who was this, this the surgeon, uh, and said, "I can br- I I can breathe. I, I you know I can breathe better." Uh, and <laughs> this was the real killer that I I really got. The, she said, I'm smarter. She says, I've been in a brain fog for 40 years. I've told my kids I'm smarter. Uh, and in reality, that's the case. Interestingly, just this week, I'm part of another group that's making a documentary on this uh, to, to, to show the world. And there's, there's a lot of good filming that's already been done on this. There's a, a young lady from uh, New York City who's uh, father took my mini residency where I teach John Mews course. And b- about five years ago, I said, he, she, uh, he came up to me and said, what would you do in my daughter's case? And I, I took one look at it and in a nanosecond. I said, she needs surgery. Hmm. Well, no father wants to hear about surgery. Hmm. And so he thanked me and he did what all fathers will t- all dentist fathers will do. He's going to try to find all the non-surgical options. Hmm. And that's exactly what he did. And over a period of a year and a half to two, he came back to me and said, Bill, you're right. And I said, I smiled at him and said, yes. And so I I helped him know the process of how to prepare his daughter for surgery. And she had the surgery done and we made no promises, but it was done properly and well, really well. And she is prospering now. And she was what we would call a health fanatic. She ate everything perfectly good, she was an exercise fanatic, but she still had no energy. She'd never had any energy in her entire life. Now she's robust. And in this meeting we had with this Zoom call of this board for this group that's promoting a documentary on this, there was a, a, a woman who is a psychiatrist and is doing research on these kinds of things. And t- she tested this girl, uh, be- this woman or in her 20s before the surgery, mm. and then tested her afterwards. Mm. And what things about cognitive function, executive uh, functioning, all kinds of different things that I'm too dumb to know about. But the numbers were amazingly better. So here, the, the, the mere fact that this this woman is now breathing and sleeping much more normally, her life has literally changed and she, she's gonna have a much, much better life story after story like this and this will be a this will be something that will be researched very well uh, by this group and will we document it in there it's going to be a docu-series that that uh they're making on this it, it will be coming eventually
0: so someone who's listening to this and thinks wow i'd love to get to do some of that where yeah. would they how would they go about finding out how how they could do it where would they look
1: here's where I'm going to disappoint you in a big way. The world is not full of a lot of people who really are tuned into this. Hmm. Yes, there's more of an awareness of this. There's sleep clinics around, a lot of them in the U.S. But to to a great degree, even the heads of the departments in the United States who head up these sleep clinics don't truly understand what they're dealing with. Hmm. And I say this because I've been going to lectures for the last 20 years. And typically what they'll you'll see in a lecture is they'll show a map of the United States and they'll show back in 1985 Mississippi had more fat people than any other state. Hmm. And then they show the map every 5 years and how obesity gets worse and worse and worse and now we've got, you know, more than 30% of the people in some states are morbidly obese. Hmm. And so they they attribute the problem to obesity. When in reality, you have tiny little Asian women that are 85 pounds and are not obese at all who have sleep apnea. Mm. They're not the typical National Football League linebacker who weighs 280 pounds and you know he's got apnea. Mm. So the, the point is they're not recognizing it, are you're going to have to look hard to find someone who truly understands that this is a, an anterior-posterior problem and the face needs to be moved forward. Mm-hmm. And just laterally expanding is not going to make it happen. Mm. I, I I wish I had a better answer and I, I don't know enough about people around the world and where there are people who really understand these these issues. Mm. Uh, it's uh, James, James Nestor's book has been great in that it has brought an unbelievable amount of awareness amongst the public. Mm. But the problem is, the medical dental system is woefully inadequately trained to address the, this this monumental issue. That, to be honest with you, and I'm not exaggerating, more people are going to suffer from this and then from the pandemic we're, we're, we're supposedly in. Hmm. Because every chronic disease known to man is correlated with poor breathing and sleep. Hmm. Now, that brings up another subject for those who really like to, to learn more. Go get Patrick McCune's book, The Breathing Cure, the most recent one that's come out. Patrick had the Oxygen Advantage, which mm. was out several years, and he has other books, one about John Mew and another one called Atomic Focus. Mm. And but the really the good one is this, The Breathing Cure. Patrick I heard speak more than ten years ago, mm. and he he didn't know it, but uh, he caught. I started taping my lips every night because uh, I've been a mouth breather, and my pillow would be wet every night. I did that 10 years ago. Now it's almost February, and if I make it to February without a cold, I will have three years of my life without a cold. Mm. And Bill Hang used to get two colds a year. Guaranteed, 100%. Mm. I knew it. And so mouth taping alone can help. That's a simple thing to do. Mm. Anybody can try that, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, that's fine. At least you tried, (laughs) but his Patrick's book is a reference book for everything. He chronicles how poor sleep and breathing, poor breathing is associated with every chronic disease named, named. And each, and each chapter has from 75 to 100 references that if you're a scientist and you really want to know more, you can delve into that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an amazing book. Uh, with interestingly, in my own situation, I've been an addicted runner. For, I've been running for more than 50 years, and I've run 32 marathons in my life. When I heard Patrick speak, I decided to try running with my lips together. Hmm. And it took me a few weeks to train myself to do that, but I was able to do it. And so I, my my 20th marathon was a Pasadena marathon, and I came in second in my age group running with my lips together. Wow! Uh, when I saw Nestor's book, then it, I'm a, I must be a slow learner because – from Nestor's book I understood that I'm still breathing was still breathing too much because right. he talks about holding his breath on the exhale mm. running through Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Yeah. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm breathing way too much, too often. Mm. And so as soon as his book came out, I began holding my breath longer on the exhale. Mm. I had been running three strides inhaling and two strides on the exhale. Mm. So when I read his book, I went from three strides in to three strides out. And I did that for a few weeks. Then three strides in and four strides out. Mm -hmm. Then three strides in and five strides out. I ran another marathon in June of last year. And I qualified for the Boston Marathon for the 11th time. Mm -hmm. And I ran that marathon three strides in, three strides out, and held my breath for nine more strides. I was having one breath for every 15 strides, Versus one breath for every five. And I've trained myself to do this and I have not sacrificed any speed. The point is I am much more fit just because of that book and my own insistence on trying to train myself. And any, any, I'm no special person. I never went out for a, a sport in high school ever. I became a runner just because. And I'm not, I'm not gifted any more than anybody else as far as that being an athlete. I'm not that competitive, but I'm competitive against myself. I give this 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 story to anybody listening because you can be in charge of your own health, and if you're not, who's going to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you're not going to get any health. The, the the healthcare system in Britain is 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 disease centered. The healthcare system in the United States is disease centered. Mm-hmm. You can spend all the money you want on it, and you're not going to get any healthier. Mm. The only person that's going to make you healthy is going to be you mm. and by what you eat and what you do, and, you know, <laughs> and if you exercise or not.
0: <laughs> you just mentioned about Patrick McCurran and all of his fabulous books, and it reminds me of um, I've heard him speak a few times, and, and I actually did his Oxygen Advantage instructor course, and I am an instructor in the Oxygen Advantage. Really?
1: <laughs> Good for you.
0: I remember him talking about, I think he mentioned it in maybe the Oxygen Advantage book, where he talked about where he met Dr. Buteko in Russia, right um, and it was about when buteko first first created the buteko method and it made right. he noticed that the breathing patterns of the patients who were ill and the breathing patterns of the patients who were recovering, and so on can Can you remember the story can you i can 't remember i,
1: I don 't remember the specifics of it, but i I know what you 're talking about, and I think patrick 's own His own story himself is so compelling Hmm. because here he was this this kid trying to do really well in school and he just worked hard and hard and hard and he got into into college in Dublin and he was struggling because Hmm. he was always sick and that's he then went to to Russia to learn this Hmm. and he was asthmatic Hmm. and you know and he knew he overbreathed and he then trained himself to be a nasal breather. And I've become really good friends with Patrick. He's been to my home and I've been to his home in Galway. He and I have lectured around the world together. But I then also treated him. He had crooked teeth, as he would with low rest tongue posture. And so I also have an x-ray of his nose. And the fact of the matter, and he, I'm happy to talk about it because he says I can talk about it, yeah. but he has a d- horribly deviated septum. Mm. It's, it's like wavy like crazy. Mm. And those of us in this industry know a deviated septum makes it harder for you to get air through your nose. Mm. But he is a classic example of someone who has trained his nose to work. Mm. He's still got the deviated septum but you will never, ever, ever see Patrick hang his mouth open. He's a nasal breather and has taught himself to do this, which I, I present that as great evidence that anyone who is committed and wants to try this, it, uh, as, as a good there's a good mentor of mine who's a dentist who now passed away two years ago. His name is Omer Reed in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And I took courses with him back in the 1980s. Wonderful human being. Uh, He used to say and one of his classic uh, classic lines that he had was, if it's been done, it's probably possible. I really like that. And I use it all the time. Well, excuse me, Patrick McCune has done it Hmm. and it is possible and other people can do it, too
0: if um so we we've been talking about improving people's breathing and so on and, and earlier in the episode you were talking about restructuring faces and so on and we right. and you mentioned about children so i'm wondering for people who do have children and grandchildren what what would they look out for to you know on their children's faces to see if maybe yeah. it's not the way it should be
1: and that's and that's the most important part of this discussion is we cannot rely on doing surgery for people when they're an adult to treat this problem. Hmm. It's like, which would you rather do? Prevent forest fires or go out there with a squirt gun and try to fight them? It's hmm. ridiculous. Yeah. We must treat very early. Hmm. And 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 let's be really clear about that. And this has taken me a long time to come to. Orthodontics usually begins in someone who's in their teenage years and has all of their teeth in. Hmm. I have for years called that rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Right. It's ridiculous. The face is so far down and back that you have very little chance to change that growth. Hmm. John Mu's uh, treatment, orthotropics to develop the face forward, starts in the mixed dentition at age seven or eight when the upper four te- teeth are, incisor teeth are in. And he develops the face forward. And that's critical. Hmm. It's great. But what we really must do, and I've only come to this in the last couple of decades, and and I haven't come out a lot about it, teaching other people to do it, is treating children before they even have the first permanent tooth in. Under age six, age three and four. So for the parents out there, number one, for the mothers, breastfeed as long as possible. Don't use a bottle. This is very important. And make sure that your child is is a nasal breather from the get-go. By the way, for those of you who have premature children, Christian Guimeno has spoken for years about the various stages of of embryology, of of, uh, fetal development that the child does not go through before birth and how almost all of them are suffering when they're born from the get-go with breathing and sleep issues, and they'll be paddling upstream to to change that. I currently have a a 16-year-old boy that was born three months prematurely he has an incredibly long face because he never could get his lips together, and we're preparing him for surgery to bring his jaws forward because he has big problems. That that whole population cohort is the, the premature kids are big big problem there. But for mothers, you want to breastfeed as long as possible. Never use a pacifier. Use earplugs for you. Don't use a pacifier because it pulls the face back. The kid pulsates with that thing. It's a retractive force on the face. The next thing is when you do wean, wean to solid foods. There's a good book from the UK from a woman who's now passed away by the name of Gil Rapley. It's called Baby Led Weaning. Get that and realize you want to have that child wean to solid food. And the more coarse the food is, the better it is. And don't think that your little baby with those little ridges can't, can't, can't eat it one way or the other. The more coarse the food is, the more they have to work, the better it is. And John Muse talked about that for years. Uh, and and that's pretty well documented uh, with uh, Daniel Lieberman's book from Harvard on the growth of the human face. Other things to do are, you know, is look, to look for. You never want to see your child have their lips apart at rest, never have their mouth hanging open. And, Another thing is mobile devices. Mobile devices are uh, they destroy people. The, the sooner you give that young kid a mobile device, the more he's going to get addicted to it. He's going to have his head down, he's going to hang his mouth open because that's what they do and you're just making the whole situation worse. There's a physician in the San Francisco area who's documenting all of this and he's d- d- writing articles about a syndrome which he's which he's identified called spiky leaky syndrome. And my myofunctional therapist that I work with all the time, Joy Moeller, she understands and treats kids with these issues. So you really, really, really need to take the parenthood thing very, very strongly. And you're in the mother's in charge, and the mother is going to change the world. Uh, if the if the child has a flaccid lower lip that rolls out, that child's a mouth breather. Uh, an easy measurement to do is John New's measurement to measure from the tip of the nose. To the edge of the upper front tooth, that's with a, with a millimeter ruler. Now, John came up with this years ago, and it's one of the most accurate things that I know. And so that measurement for a girl should be 21 millimeters plus the patient's age and years. So let's say you have an eight-year-old girl, 21 plus eight is 29. And most girls that you'll see will have a number far higher than that. It's rare to see someone whose face is on that that close to the norm. And if you do, you'll see a very attractive, if a patient has that number, that, that face will be very attractive. Your eye will just know it. For a boy, that number is 23 millimeters plus the patient's age and years. If you measure this, many of the patients that we see in our practice are 8 to 10 millimeters above that. Traditional orthodontics only makes that number bigger by retracting. In reality, everybody needs to have things move forward. So there are myofunctional therapists in every country. Uh, There's a group here in the United States that I'm very, uh, very intimately related to. All these people, I know many of them, and the person who's in charge of the organization is my friend. They're trying to spread the word. And what we really need is myofunctional therapists. We've got more than 10,000 orthodontists in the United States. We need about 100,000 myofunctional therapists to help all the kids who need it. And we need about not nearly that many orthodontists because if we had the myofunctional therapists doing their thing, orthodontics wouldn't be needed. Nobody would need to have braces. And I make the the very, very compelling statement a few years ago that, you know, more recently you see that the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics shows that very few orthodontists will treat anyone until they're at least age 6 and have permanent teeth coming in. I make the crazy statement that we should have our orthodontic treatment finished by age 6. Mm. That's pretty bold statement to make, but after all these years of dealing with this, I view it as the literally the only way to make any headway in this in this airway war where we're seeing the faces come fall down and back and they have been for centuries. If we don't do something about it, we're frankly doomed, and and I I'm, and I'm say that uh, with, sadly, I t- Joy Muller, my good friend, my myofunctional therapist, said it about 10 years ago, and I thought, man, she's crazy, but the more I think about it, the more I see, I don't think she's crazy. We have got to act, and we have to act now, and it's going to happen with the mothers. And the market of people who are going to be able to help has got to ri- rise to the demand that the mothers are going to have. And I've said for years, the mothers, the mama bears that are looking out for their little cubs, they're going to make the difference here.
0: Uh, Bill, I mean, you've got so much wisdom, so much experience. Have, have you considered writing a book?
1: <laughs> I have written four books and not published one. Mm-hmm. And once I finished, I started back in the 1990s when I lived in Vermont, I wrote a book. And then it was great. And then I didn't move on getting it published. Uh, I absolutely need to to write a book because I know I'm not being big headed about this. I'm just being truthful because I've I've dedicated my life to this. My life is completely out of balance. I work seven days a week on this very issue. Uh, I work four four, four days a week seeing patients, but I'm in this office sitting in this chair on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, living here in Southern California when I could go out and you know, go surfing, uh, hike, uh, go golfing, uh, uh, go skiing in a local ski area. Uh, I'm here working because mm. I'm committed to making a difference just because I've seen what goes on, and I feel like I have to be the advocate for the patient because mm. no one else is going to do that. Um, and I'm trying to train other people to do what I do. And uh, I'm too busy, frankly, to write a book, but I've been told I need to, and maybe that's going to happen when I'm a little freer with my time and not seeing patients all the time.
0: Well, I, I look forward to the book. I hope, <laughs> I, hope I hope people do manage to persuade you because the, the world needs that book, Bill. Yeah. And and speaking of books, Bill, is there a book that you, that comes to mind that has really moved you in any way?
1: Well, I, the, the, the ones I already mentioned are the, are really the best ones. Uh, but to, I think a, a book that to me is very entertaining and to let everyone know that this isn't even new. This has been around forever. (laughs) The book is by George Catlin, C-A-T-L-I-N, and it's called Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life. Now, that is such a cool title. I wish I'd come up with that, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't come up with it in the way he (laughs) he came up with it. George Catlin was an attorney in Philadelphia, and he was in his early 30s, in the 1830s, he decided to junk being a lawyer, and he went to the American West and became a, uh, a, an artist and a photographer when photography came in. And George Catlin is one of the best known artists of, the, of that era in the, in the American West. He also went to South America. as part of his travels. But he came up with this book called Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life it was published in the 1860s for the first time. And what he did is he, he compared the native Americans, their faces to the Caucasians that he knew on the East coast of the United States, where they were in the the cities that had already been developed. And he talked about how the native Americans had their lips together. He talked about how the, the, uh, the squaw, the mother would take the baby off of the breast and immediately take the baby's lips and take her fingers and push them together to make sure that the child didn't, didn't keep the mouth open. Mm. I mean, intuitively knew this showed native American children sleeping as they did with their lips together. And he had drawings of, of Caucasian kids where he would see and what he was used to seeing in the East coast. Uh, and, and when their mouths were open, and then he talked about how the faces were changed by habit, not, yeah, you know, that wasn't anything genetic, but you could see that the, the faces were, were, you know, way back for the Caucasians. And he acknowledges that the, not only did the, the, uh, Native Americans call the Caucasians pale face, they also called them black mouth because their mouths would be wide open like this. And back in those days, the mouth breathing would, would make someone have infinitely more tooth decay and periodontal disease. So many, many people back in those days had no teeth. So if they were talking and their mouths wide open, they just like it's black mouth. Hmm. And that's what he described. It's a it's a compelling book. Uh, you can get it off of Amazon for thirteen dollars if you're offended by, uh, you know, not politically correct uh, language. Don't buy it because he talks about the Native Americans as savages. Hmm. So but you have to look at that as the time in hmm. which he was writing the book. Yeah. That was what people said back in those days. And so it's a very – it's it, the the point of the book is <clears throat> that it shows that we've been talking about this for forever. There's one more book that I would urge people to get. It's called uh, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration uh, by Weston Price, who was a dentist in the United States and in the 30s and 40s toured the world and noticed that faces and teeth changed in one generation. Now, as orthodontists, we're taught, oh, that the malocclusion is a intimate uh, – play of genetics and environment and there's no there's no real evidence that genetics plays anything in in this Hmm. this game it's really almost all environment and that's what you for some some mutation to occur would take thousands of years to go through a population and become permanent Hmm. and think about it if it's a mutation that causes someone to have a worse airway how is that person ever going to survive to reproduce it makes no sense Hmm. So this book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, <clears throat> is, is about his, Western prices travels all over the world mm. to places where in the space of one generation, the, the parents had good teeth and no malocclusions and their kids d- had malocclusions and poor looking faces. Mm. And he describes this. And the one change was a change to the Western diet with refined sugar and flour and pasteurized milk. Uh, th- there's more to read on this, and you can even believe uh, yet another one is uh, another book is Pottinger's cats. P O T T E N G E R. Uh, uh, Francis Pottinger was a physician in Pasadena and and did experiments on cats, feeding them same food, but he cooked the food and pasteurized the milk for one group, and gave the raw food and raw milk to another, and the cats developed very differently. It's a very compelling book. So basically, confirming that what we're dealing with here is an environment, it's a lifestyle issue. And unless, until we change our lifestyle, we're not going to get rid of these problems.
0: Bill, if people want to find out more about you and your social media and website, where would where they look?
1: Uh, my website is www.facefocused.com. Uh, That's for patients to look at. For dentists who want to learn more about what we do uh, and take courses, and I have a brand new course, which is kicking off in, in Dallas, Texas, called ECHO, E-C-H-O, Early Childhood Health-Centered Orthodontics. It will start in Dallas in May. That you can find out uh, through my uh, website called ortho, O-R-T-H-O, H O Two health, H-E-A-L-T-H. And the O-O-2 means he- ortho, the reason I have O-2 is it's oxygen. Hmm. So ortho2health.com. Uh, list my courses, both <clears throat> I have uh, a, a mentorship called ERRS for treating adults who had, you know, retractive orthodontics. It's also to, to prevent that doing some di- things differently in adolescence and how not to remove teeth and, and, and how to preserve the airway and still get straight teeth. But the new organization is going to be teaching to, to a great degree. I'll be focusing on Orthotropics, as developed by John Mew, only the big emphasis is going to be treating the child before age six. Hmm. So, if 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 some mother wants to have someone treat her child, they find a dentist who will take this course because it's it's for dentists only. Pediatric dentists, orthodontists who are interested in this, general dentists who do ortho, general dentists who do ortho are generally the, the biggest market because they they've seen. The world of retractive orthodontics, and they don't like what they see, and they want to, they want something better, and that's what they perceive as better. Most of the people who've taken my mini residency are general dentists who do orthodontics.
0: Well, and finally, Bill, is there um, is there a quotation that you particularly like?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I I love. I already gave it to you, uh, Omar Reed, this very very bright dentist. Who was a mentor to me, starting in the early '80s? Uh, his quotation is, "If it if it has been done, it is probably possible." I love that quotation.
0: Well, Bill, um, thank you for your time. It's been a oh. it's been a real pleasure, and I, I hope
1: my, my <laughs> happy my, to try to help you.
0: Yeah, I hope the listeners have, have gained a lot from this. I hope, yeah, I, I sincerely think they will have. So, yeah, thank you.
1: Okay, thank you. Hope you
0: enjoyed that episode with Bill Hang. He mentioned that a few times in the episode about a British dentist called Mike Mew. Sorry, John Mew, rather. And in a couple of weeks' time, uh, on episode number 60, which will be released on the 5th of April, I'm speaking with Mike Mew, who is the son of John Mew, who was mentioned by Bill a few times. Mike Mew is one of the most forward-thinking dentists in the country, so... That is episode 60 in a few weeks time with Mike New. Next week, episode 55 is with Tina McDermott and Tina, she spent a lot of her life struggling with digestive issues and she didn't really understand why she was getting so much gas and bloating and constipation and her was really having problems with yo-yo weight gain and loss and she eventually discovered what the issues were that was causing her these issues. What was causing all these problems, and how she went um, forward to to solve it really, and she, you know, one of the things was Lyme disease, and there was various other things. So that's next week's episode with Tina McDermott. If you know anyone who would get some real value from some of the uh, great information that Bill shared with us this week, please do share the episode with them. And I hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at tonywinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.